Triple Content Creations presents Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability with your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. Content warning. The opinions, language, and discussion expressed in Disability After Dark may be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Do you want to keep the conversation lit around sex and disability? Want to spark a conversation about something you heard on the show? Feel like shining some light on an issue that I haven't even thought of? You can do all that and get the inside scoop on what happens in my brain after dark by following me on Twitter at Andrew Gerza, that's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A. And be sure to use the hashtag DisabilityAfterDark all over your social media so we can shine light on sex and disability together. Hello there, thanks for listening to episode 19 of Disability After Dark. This is a really cool episode and I'm glad you could join us. So get ready to shine a bright light on sex and disability with me right here on Disability After Dark. Episode 19 is an interesting one. I did an interview a few weeks ago with a male sex worker. His name is Devin Delacroix. He talked to me about his experiences meeting clientele with disabilities and what that meant for him and the things he encountered trying to navigate the world of disability as a sex worker. I think sex work and disability is an important part of the conversation around sex and disability. It's one that I think many people with disabilities have considered before, but I don't think we talk about it enough. So I was really happy to sit down with Devin and have a really frank conversation and hear his side of things and just have a really relaxed discussion about his experiences being a sex worker, providing these services to people with disabilities. And I was happy to hear what he had to say. Hey, Devin, thanks for being on Disability After Dark today. How are you doing? Um, I'm good, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's really, really exciting that you're here because you and I have been trying to set up this interview for a while now, so I'm glad that we could finally sit down and do it. Yeah, I, f- I feel like maybe you first contacted me. Has it been six months since you first tweeted me that you wanted to talk? I think it's, it's been about six months. But... It's, been a, it's been six months, a brand change, a whole bunch of things have changed since we initially talked but we're here now which is awesome so yay um Um, so what do you so what do you want to talk about well i want to talk about sex work and disability with you today that's that's kind of what we're gonna chat about so can you kind of let the audience know a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the work you do um sure so i um i'm i'm a sex worker um, I have been in the business now for, I think about 10, 10 years. Um, I'm originally from Toronto, but I have worked in, uh, a number of different cities around the world. Um, and in terms of the services that I provide, um, it's anything from sort of basic erotic massage through, uh, um, various types of kink and fetish sections, um, more romantic 
point friend experience type things. Um, I cater to, I'm open to all different types of clients. Um, I don't work exclusively with clients who have disabilities. Um, although that is, um, I can't, I can't say that I'm an expert on it, obviously, but um, I, I feel like maybe relative to other sex workers, I've had more experience with it. Um, I, I don't necessarily know why that is, um, except for the fact that at an sort of earlier point in starting to work, um, I did put it out there on my profiles that I was... Um, comfortable working with um, not just clients with disabilities, but also guys who are just very inexperienced in general, um, guys with different body types, um, guys of different ages, uh, because there are some sex workers who are really freaked out if there's a client who is uh, in a wheelchair or if a client is 400 pounds or something like that. And so for me, I just just so that people don't feel feel comfortable approaching me initially, I usually sort of state in my profiles that I'm, you know, open to and experienced with all different types of bodies. And I think that's really cool that you that you put that out there because most sex workers won't say explicitly, "Oh, I'm I'm open to this." They'll say, "Like I'm a sex worker. I'm available. I'm available on this website from this time to this time, or you know, hire me for this." But they won't explicitly say, "Like, hey, you have a different body type. Let's." it's okay to still talk to me. So I think that, I think that's really progressive. Um, and I haven't seen that a lot in, in when I've looked at sex workers who put ads out there. So I think that's great. Um, what was your, can you kind of tell us your first thoughts when you were contacted by a client with disabilities? What was you, what, like what went through your mind when you said that some sex workers are freaked out and I can understand a little bit why, but why do you think that is? And what was your kind of experience when you navigated that yourself? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'll say just to give a little bit of background on myself. Uh, my, I grew up with uh, parents who were actually working in the medical field. Um, so from a fairly young age, I was not um, freaked out by the body uh, in any way. You know, I grew up eating my grilled cheese sandwich while reading medical textbooks at the kitchen table, you know, watching uh, videos of heart surgery with my mother and stuff like that when I was nine. So I'm not, um, I, I, just because of the way that I grew up, I, I think about the body in a different way than people who don't necessarily have that experience think about it. Um, in terms of um, sort of specific, clients, um, the, just as a fluke, uh, the very first client I ever had, um, when I posted an ad, um, was a person who was living with MS. Um, at that point I hadn't said anything about specific types of clients I wanted to, to see or specific services that I offered. Um, it was just a coincidence that the very first guy who approached me, um, uh, was living with MS. Um, he, his condition was deteriorating, but he was still at a point where he, um, could walk a little bit. Um, uh, although during our conversations, he made it clear that he was, the, the prognosis was that he was going to end up, um, wheelchair bound fairly soon and probably bed bound 
eventually. Um, and with this particular client, and I would say pretty much universally with clients who have disabilities, um, one of the things that I've found is that generally they, first of all, they're upfront about it. Um, they, they don't want to make it a surprise for you. They let you know in advance. Um, and generally, um, they're going to give you very specific information about, um, I mean, obviously about what they're interested in sexually, but also about what their specific limitations are, um, what they might need, uh, help with, um, that sort of thing. So anyway, with this very first client I had, I, as I said, it was the first one. So I didn't really know what I was getting into in the sex business, right? Like I just, I had thought, um, and I, I said this in the, the essay that I wrote about it, um, you know, it was something I thought that was going to be temporary. I imagined myself doing sex work for a couple of months. And the, the first person that contacted me happened to be a guy who was living with MS. And, um, and I just thought, oh, okay, I don't know, maybe, maybe this, this is, is what sex work is, is right? <laughs> like, like, maybe this, maybe... Maybe everybody who not not that not that I thought everybody who contacted me was going to be living with MS, but um, because it was the very first client I ever had, I wasn't. I was kind of not. I was going prepared not to be shocked by anything. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question or if I've gone way too far off track. But no, I mean it was, it's a nice little tangent. I like that you said that you kind of weren't. You were ready to be. You were ready to not be shocked by anything, and you were kind of just ready to like dive in and go. Um, but what I'm curious about is like, when, okay, so he told you he had MS. He told you he was living with disabilities. And what was like, do you remember like the first thought that crossed your mind? Like, okay, how do I, did you have any fear? Was there any like trepidation? Because I've heard from, um, from, Sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. From people who uh, have had disabled clients that they do have a moment of like, okay, how do we do this? I'm not sure what to like. I'm not, I don't know how to help you without making it awkward. Was there a sense of that with you? Or did you just kind of, because you've looked at the body differently since you were young, did you just go, okay, all right, we'll figure it out? Um, I mean, I would say that there was an element of fear and trepidation because it was the first client I ever had. Um, and so I just didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, I think when I was earlier in my work uh in the business um i had a lot more fear about um you know a client potentially assaulting me or ripping me off or something like that um, of course which is not something that i am as concerned about now not that it, it's impossible but it's not something i was concerned about um and so so i think i was just nervous about about doing a good job <laughs> and making him happy um, in, a, in a way that I would say even after 10 years, I'm still always a little bit nervous the first time I meet a client, uh, regardless of what they're looking for, what their situation is, because I want to give somebody the experience that they're looking for. Um, but with this guy, I, I didn't really think, I mean, it's now it's so long ago, it's hard for me to remember, but I don't really remember thinking much of it at the time. He, um, the, the other thing, and I, I wrote about this in the essay as well, is that in this specific case, um, he was living with MS, but he also had this very particular fetish that he wanted to be indulged in, which was a shaving fetish. 
Um, oh, and so he, so, want, he uh, wanted you to, to shave him then? Yeah, he wanted he wanted me to shave him. Um, and uh, I mean, I detailed this in the essay, but essentially we we met. He he wanted to meet somewhere quite far into the suburbs and uh, at a hotel. And he came to pick me up at the subway in in his van. I think it was a van. Um, and then we so we drove to the hotel and sort of chatted on the way. And then we came in and. Um, because he had been seated up until that point, uh, I didn't really have a sense of what his mobility was like until he stepped out of the, the vehicle. And then at that point, I could see, oh, okay, this, this guy is definitely um, struggling a bit. Um, so we went into the hotel, and he can't remember how much detail he'd given me in advance, but basically the idea was that he wanted me to... Um, sort of help him into the bathtub and then uh, uh, sort of lather him up and shave uh, all of his body hair off <laughs> with a disposable razor. Um, awesome, awesome. Sounds like a fun night. Yeah, and he, I mean, my recollection had been that he had wanted to shave me as well, um, and that wasn't something that I, I wanted to do, um, uh, partially just because my... I I didn't totally feel comfortable having a stranger with a razor blade close to my genitals. Yeah, I don't think uh, blame you there. <laughs> and also just because I was thinking about the, you know, future clients and if, you know, if you end up with your pubes in some kind of a weird shape, how many weeks do you have to wait for it to grow out before you see another client or something like yeah, that? Yeah, you're so, thinking about your your business and work. I, yeah. 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 So, yeah. So I don't like, as I said, it's so long ago, but I don't really remember thinking that much about it. He was, he, in his communication, basically the very first thing that he talked about was living with MS and what his physical limitations were. And then there was the specific fetish that he wanted to indulge in and that he wanted to meet in this hotel. Um, and, uh, yeah, but other than uh, just being nervous about um, doing things in the way that he wanted them done, um, there there was nothing else about the scene that I was particularly um, sort of uh, uncomfortable about going into it. Okay, so I mean, it's interesting that that he that you um, that he wanted to shave you, and so, but I, I I like that you kind of were like, no, I don't want to do that because you want to, you obviously want to protect yourself. I've been in situations where I had, I had a, a visitor at one point, and they wanted to, to, they wanted to cut my hair, and I was like, um, I don't think we're gonna do that because I want to be safe, and I don't know who you are, so no. Um, so I've been in similar situations where I had somebody come over, and he he wanted to, he literally was like, can I cut your hair, cut your hair, and I was like, why? He's like, cause it would look hotter, and I was like, okay, but no, because I don't know who you are, so I, I can understand the the um, the little bit of fear, like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna use a sharp thing in my body, no thanks, um. But in terms of working with the, working with him after like you got into the room, what was the um, transaction like? Was it was there was there any? Did you have to like get him help him to get into bed, help him get undressed? Because when I engage in sex with somebody, that's one of the first things I have to advise them on as to how how I get undressed and what I'll need. And so when I'm communicating with my lovers beforehand, that's something I'll have to be very clear about. 
and sometimes when they when it they're like oh yeah no problem I'll help you and then when they realize the kind of help I need it get it can be kind of awkward was there any sense of like I'm not sure how to do this with you um I'm trying to remember what he what he specifically said um I think in terms of getting undressed he was more or less okay um in terms of getting into the the tub, he definitely needed assistance. Um, I don't think that he specified that in advance, but basically as soon as we got out of the car and I saw what his mobility was like, I knew immediately, okay, I'm going to, you're not going to be able to get into the tub yourself. I'm going to have to help you do this. Um, but I think other than that, I don't know that there was any, um, real communication in that way. I just kind of felt like I knew what what he like I could tell what he needed in that regard as far as physical assistance at least I thought um the I mean one of the interesting things about the scene is that for me um and again this has a little bit to do with the the family that I come from the whole thing was actually quite medical (laughs) for me um in this way of you know physically helping somebody into a tub um even the shaving part seemed very sort of medical. Um, and as a, as a sex worker, it's, um, you don't necessarily always have to be turned on by everything that you're doing. No, of course. Um, but generally, and I say generally, because this is always the case, but generally you need to seem like you're turned on for the for the client right because they want to believe that whatever is happening is turning you on um my recollection was i was that he the the fetish that he had was quite specific he didn't um he wasn't that concerned about me i don't i think i stripped down to my underwear but i don't think i even took my underwear off during the scene i don't think he touched my dick at all um i definitely didn't get hard um but there was this kind of Thing in the back of my mind of feeling like, oh, should I seem like I'm turned on by this? Um, how important that is that to him. But again, he didn't, I don't think he even tried to touch my dick or anything. So I don't believe that it was important to him. And was it, so did, but did you feel like you're saying, oh, you, you're saying you thought you should have been hard. Well, did you feel like to, to give this guy what he wants, I should, I should have an erection right now? Or did you just kind of go into the scene saying whatever he wants to do, we'll figure it out. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he laid out quite specifically the fetish that he wanted and he didn't say something like, um, you know, if, if in a situation like this, the client lays out this sort of fetish scenario and then at the end says, um, and then we suck each other off or then we jerk each other off or something. The implication is that you should be sort of turned on by the session. Yeah. Um, but in this case, he didn't say anything like that. It was just help me into the tub, shave me. Um, and then, and then I did jerk him off at the end of the session. Um, but he didn't ask me for that. Now it's possible that he may have just assumed that there's no way that I could have been turned on in that situation if he'd been with other sex workers and had bad experiences and therefore he didn't want to have the experience of disappointment of, you know, a guy with a kind of, you know, semi hard dick trying to beat off and not being able to come. Um, that's yeah. not something he said, but that's just something I'm, I, I think may have been a possibility. Uh, but I, I don't know that for sure. 
Okay. Uh, my next thought about that. Now, when I when I have talked to sex workers and I've seen documentaries about sex workers and people who work with people with disabilities, there's there's an overarching um, kind of narrative that follows them, which is like, I'm a sex worker and I'm gonna give them the gift of orgasm and I'm gonna make them feel really good and I'm gonna make them I'm gonna change their day and make sure that they feel sexual too and typically when we talk about sex work and disabilities this is one of the first narratives that comes out um when you did you have any sense of like that you had to make his you know change his day and make him feel sexual or did you like what was your what do you feel about that when you hear that narrative um, I mean, I think as a sex worker, I always want to change people's day, right? <laughs> like, you know, I always want to give them, you know, an experience that they'll remember, um, regardless of what it is that we're doing or what their particular situation is. Um, this kind of, um, Florence Nightingale complex thing that you're talking about, um, in this particular situation, I don't remember feeling that, um, but in subsequent experiences that I had in, with clients with disabilities, there definitely was a version of that for me of feeling like, oh, you know, I'm doing something so amazing for this person. No one else will touch them but me. You know, I'm, uh, you know, committing this beautiful act of public service or generosity or something, which, you know, you can call bullshit on pretty quickly because they're paying right like it's yeah. so so I'm not actually doing it as a, you know I, I mean I want to be of course be generous in every sexual experience that I interact that I have but uh, this is not an act of pure generosity I am getting paid for it um, the I mean I think that the the first contact that I had with you was actually about addressing this specific issue in another essay that I wrote um, about a, a different client I had who who was in a wheelchair and um, the there was this very interesting thing of me kind of uh, being with him um, being surprised of not surprised but but being turned on by the situation um, in a way that I guess I hadn't expected to be oh um, yeah I do remember that piece yeah 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 and and then um, and in this case, the, the specific guy, just to contextualize it for people, um, he hadn't been in a wheelchair his whole life. He had been in a, in a quite serious car accident. I think, uh, I, can't, I can't remember, something like 10 or 15 years before we met um, and then lost the use of his legs. Um, and so he had to kind of start his life over again at that point and, um, you know, figure out how to do everything and have his apartment um, uh, retrofitted so that he could get around it still. Um, and the, the conversation afterwards, after we had sex was really interesting because I started to realize that he has not, he's continued to live this very full, rich life. Um, I, I suspect that his sex life, uh, is not what it would have been before. Um, because, Gay men in general are incredibly superficial, as you may have noticed. I, I, I have noticed. <laughs> Quite. In your own life. Um, and so, you know, whether you're in a wheelchair or, you know, 
you just have the wrong haircut or you cross your legs in the wrong way or something. Gay men can be turned off very, very easily by different things. But aside from his sex life, he, you know, he continues to travel really avidly. He plays wheelchair tennis. Um, he's, you know, very socially engaged. He goes out. Um, this particular guy, he was living in Amsterdam, which is definitely not a city that is built for accessibility. Um, yeah, most of Europe is not wheelchair friendly. Yeah, I mean, Amsterdam especially, um, it's because it's built in this very, very tight configuration. So even if you're somebody who is not in a wheelchair but has uh, some mobility challenges, just getting up and down these tiny, tiny little steep staircases, I just I can't imagine what that would be like. Yeah. So I think that he doesn't probably doesn't go out so much to kind of conventional gay establishments, but he's still sort of very socially active. And uh, anyway, so I kind of had this perception part, at least at the beginning, partway through the session that I was this kind of Florence Nightingale who was changing his life and then realized partway through, actually, no, I'm just another person who's providing him with uh, a service. You know, I'm just, I'm the same as the woman who's cleaning his house or the guy who's fixing his cabinets or, you know, his, uh, you know, network guy that comes by to deal with his computer. I'm just another service provider. Well, I hope you're a bit more fun than his network guy. (laughs) I hope he was having a little bit more fun with you than with his network guy or his cleaning lady. Well, well, I, I, I would assume so. Although I have to say, if I had the choice between someone having sex with me and someone cleaning my apartment, I would always choose the person to clean my apartment. <laughs> but that's just a per- that's a personal choice. I, I know that not everybody's going to feel that way. Uh, right. I, I do have a question about um, about money and about the cost of of hiring a sex worker. Now, I know that the rates are pretty competitive out there when you when you put yourself in this business, and, and typically from what I've seen, in Canadian dollars, it can go anywhere from 250 an hour up to like 1000 for an, for an in-call, out-call. In terms of disability, a lot of people with disabilities aren't living on with exorbitant amounts of money. So when you experience a client with, with disabilities, have you experienced where they've come to you and said, listen, I can't pay you the full fee because my... My benefits won't allow it. Can we come to an agreement? Has that ever happened for you? Um, I think it's happened a couple of times. Um, although for whatever reason, most of the clients that I've seen who have disabilities are actually people who uh, have, at, at least as far as I'm aware, enough financial stability that they can afford my regular rates. Um, I... I mean, I'm I'm cautious with this because uh, lots of people try to try to get you to work for less money, um, not just people who are on a fixed income. Um, of course, you know, I've had numerous clients who will bargain about twenty bucks, and then I show up at their place, and they're living in some kind of lavish penthouse. <laughs> wow. So, um, so, so lots of people will try to bargain with you. Um, Irregardless of whether or not they uh, can afford the services, because there's something about the bargaining process that kind of gets them off, or this idea of being able to get you to charge less money is is a turn on for them in some way. Um, What I would say with rates is that um, you know I do offer uh, 
some level of flexibility. Um, I have a number of regular clients who who don't have disabilities, but who are on a very fixed or limited income, who I will see um, kind of based on what they can afford. Um, but I also have to be conscious of my own uh, self-esteem. Um, of course. There was, there was another uh, column that I wrote about um, when I had first started uh, working, one of the strategies I had was actually to charge really low rates. Um, because I thought I could just sort of undercut the other guys who were out there and that, you know, I would, would make more money. And what I found out, um, uh, firstly, was that um, it really messed with my self-esteem <laughs> to feel like I was giving myself away for very little amounts of money. And in some yeah. cases doing things that were really not pleasurable. Um, but the other thing that I realized after that is that in, in the world of sex work, like many other things, you do get what you pay for and experienced clients know that. And so these guys that you see online that are offering really low rates, at least among experienced clients, there's an expectation that they're actually not going to provide a very good service. Um, and so for me, when I upped my rates, um, one of the things I immediately found is that I started getting more calls and I started getting calls from better clients. Um, because those guys, when they saw that I was charging less initially, they thought, oh, well, whatever, he's a scam artist. I'm not going to um, so, yeah, so I would say that, you know, generally I, I have, um, some flexibility, uh, if, if people are upfront about it, um, that, that's one thing as opposed to, um, showing up at a person's place and they say, oh, I know you said this much, but I only have this much, um, cause that's just not, you know, nice. Yeah. Um, but it no, is, it's actually, I mean, it's, you know, it's totally, day, totally rude for you to be like, oh, well you said this. And then I only have this, like, it, it's happened um, where, and I've talked to people who, who have sex workers who've said, like, I had a client, and I, we were done, and I was waiting for, for the money, and they said, oh, I only have this, and then you, you kind of take what you can get, and you, you, you go, but you're like, I really needed that extra, those extra dollars, because that's what we agreed on, so I don't think, I don't think it's fair for you as a sex worker to have to undercut yourself and to um, to be undercut by clients. I just know as a, as a disabled person, when you're navigating hiring a sex worker, the things you think about are, you know, given my fixed income, if I were to hire this person, will I be able to eat next week? Like that's something that I, that I when I've considered hiring sex workers, and I, I haven't done it very often, but it is something that has crossed my mind. Um, my first thought is, okay, well, I'm getting money from the government to live. If I use this money on a sex worker, I will not be able to feed myself for the week. So it's a really weird kind of soapy choice of, like, things you go through in your head because you're like, sex is a need, but so is food. Yeah. Which one do I choose? Yeah, and I mean, I don't, uh, you know, I don't like to hear anybody feeling like they have to you have to have a, a you know a Sophie's choice or a catch twenty two or whatever you want to call it. Um, as much as there is a kind of certain altruism that goes along with sex work for for me, um, I wouldn't say that every sex worker is like that. But for me, and certainly for a lot of the guys that I, I know and the women, um, there is a kind of altruism about it. There is a sense of generosity. Um, but at the end of the day, it is um, a business, and 
you know, our services are not covered by OHIP. <laughs> no. Uh, for people who are out of Ontario, that's the, the provincial healthcare program. Um, and uh, what do you what do you think you about the services being covered by by the state or having? Because I know in Europe there are certain cities and states that will cover a stipend for stuff like that. What do you think about that coming into Ontario or coming into Canada or coming into places that don't have it? Um, do you think that that's something that is good, would, would, would work, is important for especially people with disabilities who, who need and want sexual contact? Um, I'm not personally aware of any of any country that has a system like that. Um, I think I've heard about I mean, it in Denmark. Denmark, maybe? Um, yeah, it's possible. I mean, I, I, I don't know that, so I can't really speak to that. Um, in terms of that, uh, I mean, I think there's a difference between that being a good idea and, the, and that being a possibility. <laughs> um, do I think it's a possibility? No, I don't think that Canadian society will start. Uh, I mean, the fact that sex work is, is has been uh, recriminalized uh, by uh, the previous government, uh, you know, we're already battling against uh, criminalization. So the idea of uh, transitioning to a full legalized system with subsidies, uh, it's, I, I just don't think that that's going to happen. Yeah, I don't think so either. But I think the idea and what I'm hearing in these, in these, in this, in these countries that do have a stipend, it's not called like a, a sex worker stipend, but it's they give you a certain number of dollars a month to use as you wish. And what tends to happen is people with disabilities will hire workers once a month to come and teach them about their bodies. And typically, the last time I read about it, it was being done with people with intellectual disabilities so that they could learn about sex and their bodies. And so the sex worker would teach them and then have a session with them. And I find it interesting because I think that what that speaks to is that sex is a need. And it shows that... that they want their disabled population to be to be sexually aware, and I think there's something kind of cool about that, and different than how we're seeing it. Because as a disabled person, when you consider hiring a sex worker, you're also like, oh, well, what if I get caught? What if my what if my care staff find out? And this way, you have the funds given to you by the government, and then you can have a session that's totally comfortable and relaxed and you don't have to worry about the money because it's there for you for whatever you wish and if you can use it for that then there it is yeah i mean i would say for the most part in terms of my political viewpoints i'm fairly socialist you know i was raised by a professor and a therapist so <laughs> pretty socialist in my viewpoints and um you know i definitely support the idea of a redistributive economy and i also know in a practical sense um from a, a, a more conservative perspective, when you give additional money to the poorest people in society, uh, it serves as a very valuable form of economic stimulus because those people don't take that money and put it in offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands. They just spend it, right? So, um, you know, so if, uh, you know, lower income people or people with disabilities receive, um, you know, additional government funding to spend on whatever it is that they want, whether that's purchasing services from me or whether that's purchasing additional food or whether that's going to see, you know, some kind of art performance or something like that. Um, that's something that I, I wholeheartedly support. And I think that there's both um, kind of a, 
progressive and a, a more conservative uh, argument for, for doing that. Um, although I might, my experience as, uh, you know, a queer sexual being and sex professional is that uh, actually tagging sex onto anything um, generally makes it just less palatable for mainstream society. So even if you really think that that's what's going to happen with the money, there would be a much better shot of just saying, oh, it's for additional nutritious food and cultural events or something like that instead yeah. of yeah. making the suggestion that it's going to be used for um, you know, more lascivious purposes. Yeah, totally. But I think, I think, you know, given the stuff that I've read about it and the, the stuff that I've heard about people doing that, I think it's a, if you want to use it for that, I think it's great. And I think the state should, I don't think it's, I agree with you that I don't think, especially, especially in Ontario, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But I think the idea of helping people with disabilities engage in sexuality in that way and kind of have agency over the kind of sex they want with a, with a worker um, is, is important. And I think, I think the state looking into that at some point not that it'll ever happen, but if they did, it would be great. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be an interesting thing to try. An interesting thing to try to find a way, find a way to spin that with the public. Um, there was, uh, I know that there was a, a, a party that you um, organized and hosted at Buddy's. Uh, I think last, maybe last summer. Yeah. And I can't remember which article it was. There was a few different things that were written about it. And there was one um, somewhere uh, that was a pretty short article that just, uh, I think that was an interview with you that said, you know, this is what the event is. Here's why I'm doing it. Um, you know, et cetera. This is, this is a good thing. And the comments that I was reading afterwards were so... I guess, indicative of the way these issues thought about generally, you know, there's one person who was writing, you know, this is disgusting. Um, disabled people shouldn't be demeaned in this way of being introduced to some sort of perverted sex environment or, or something like that. And just, just kind of talking about the whole thing as if it was, you know, morally wrong to provide this platform. Um, I mean, there were definitely some other comments that, that, that skewed in, in an opposing direction, but there was that kind of, certainly that kind of thinking about it. Now, I mean, I would say that people who make those sort of comments would probably not be generally supportive of these kind of sexual spaces broadly in society, regardless of, you know, the level of ability of the people who are patronizing them. Um, yeah, but it, yeah. it was interesting to, to see to see that, um, and I, I think, I mean, maybe because I, I mean, I'm from Canada, but I, I work quite a bit in Europe, um, where uh, the the sort of prevailing cultural sense generally is uh, a lesser degree of involvement and interest in people's personal lives than than we have in than the salacious America. North American. Like, oh my God, you're doing something about sex. Let's make it a yeah. And I mean that party. Yeah. Was, that party was great. Um, we I hope to do it again at some point. Uh, it, it was such an important event. But getting those comments really did show me how afraid we are to talk about sex. And I, I said in an article that I wrote, following, but even before the party, following those comments and following one of the big first splashes of that in in 
So media was like, we're fucking afraid to talk about this. And me having this party, like it wasn't, yes, it was, it was dubbed an orgy. But really, truly, having been there, I can tell you, the party was not, not that at all. I mean, it was people making out and talking about sex. And sex was on the table only if two people consented. And so it really wasn't like this big orgy that people thought it was. I think people just wanted to jump on the fact that disabled people were having sex. Um, and so that was like the titillating factor. And so like we, the organizers jumped on that and we ran with it. So like, let's see what happens. Let's see how much we can milk this to get publicity. Um, but to see, to see the comments of people, a lot of them were actually disabled from the disabled community, um, deriding the event and saying how disgusting it was and how disgusted they were. I was just shocked to, to see that from the community. Yeah, I mean, I think that sex freaks people out. Um, I think uh, there was um, an interview I read a million years ago with Nina Hartley, who's a former porn star now. I, I think she still directs porn films. Um, and uh, she was talking about this idea of uh, the United States uh, being founded as a Puritan culture, you know, the, the, the basic roots of that society, the earliest colonists that came from Europe left it because they saw it as this uh, deeply sinful, morally bankrupt place, and they wanted to come to the new world um, and uh, start fresh with a kind of clean, uh, morally pure slate, um, forgetting right. about the obvious implications of colonialism and slavery and all the other horrible shit that went along with that. Um, but she said, you know, this, this, the, the idea that we are formed at our core as a puritanical culture, that is never going to go away in all likelihood. And it continues to influence people's thinking, um, even at, even as people don't realize it does. Um, and now, I mean, Canada, again, was, was formed under somewhat similar, somewhat different circumstances. So we don't necessarily have that, but Canadians are so influenced by American culture and American ways of thinking about things that that um, fear of sex, um, that uh, sort of puritanical morality uh, still filters very much into our culture. Um, I mean, I think that the, the one difference that I can observe is that um, Canadians really don't like to make people feel bad, generally. That's true. Um, and so we we're are just a nation less of people who say sorry a lot. Yeah, so so we're less likely to um, actually express our negative opinions about what people are doing. It doesn't mean that we don't still hold those judgments, <laughs> um, but we just don't actually uh, come out and say them in the way that Americans would. This is true, and I think in the world of social media. You are safe behind a keyboard, so you can say whatever you want because nobody, you're not saying to their face. Um, and I think that's given, you know, especially given this recent, to, to veer off from sex a little bit, given the recent election cycle, you see that a lot more. Uh, the, the U.S. election cycle right now, you see a lot of people saying exactly what they think under the safety of Facebook or Twitter without worrying about consequences. Um... Yep. Well, that's that's what social media <laughs> that's what social media does. You know, people are willing to say all sorts of things when they can do it anonymously. And I mean, that's what I learned with the sex party because most of my most of the the advertising for me was done via social media because I could access 
social media a lot easier than I could traditional media. So to see the comments from people, it was like, whoa, okay, this is how you really feel. All right, great. Thanks for, thanks for letting me know. Now I have to sit back and feel about that. And I'm the kind of person that would feel everything about that. So I remember feeling really... There was a few times where I called the fellow organizers and said, you know, guys, this is, I don't know how we're going to get through. And it really affected me as a somebody trying to, all I wanted to do with that party was create a space. I think we did that. Um, and I think to, to see how scared people were to engage in a topic around sex and disability shows me, though, that I have so much more work to do and that I'm never going to be out of a job. I'm never going to not, I'm never going to not have work to do and not have lectures to give and not have blogs to write and podcasts to produce because... People want this conversation. And they, they just don't know they want it. Once you bring it to them, all of a sudden, all of a sudden they're excited. So, social media has. Well, and I, I mean, I think that the nature of being a public person, um, which used to mean you know, just being a writer or being on the radio or being on TV, and now extends to social media, is that you are putting yourself out there. Um, I mean, it's quite different, but for me as a sex worker, I, you know, have also get, uh, you know, anonymous hate-filled emails uh, very sporadically. It doesn't happen that often. Um, back when people used to use the phone, you know, occasionally you get harassing phone calls or text messages or something like that. And yeah. it's um, the, at least with, with online stuff, the, the thing that... Uh, I used to get quite disturbed about it, and then I and and oftentimes I would uh, sort of push back against people and kind of say, you know, why are you saying these things? Why are you making these assumptions about me? You know, why do you assume that because I do sex work that I am, you know, not educated, for example? And then I gradually realized that the, that people only want to do those things as long as they can be anonymous. Um, yeah. And it is, if someone's contacting me through some sort of website um, where they have a profile, uh, first of all, there's never a photo attached. Of course, to it, right? right? Of course. Um, you know, it's, it's done totally anonymously. And uh, they are just kind of getting off on being able to say things that actually they could never say to my face. Yeah, you know, of course. If these kinds of people, if you were encountered them at a party, they would never say the kinds of things. That never. They would be quietly, quietly be judging you with their eyes, but they would never say like what they really thought. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you're going to be a queer person in general or a sex worker in particular, you cannot, like, you, you can't get through your life if you, care about people's judgments or, or more specifically, if you care about everyone's judgments, um, yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a different context, but as a, as a, a, a teacher, when I'm working with, with students, uh, not, not in the sex field, <laughs> but in the art field, my other profession, uh, one of the things I often say to them is, you know, as a, as an artist coming out into the world, um, you're constantly going to have people sharing their opinions with you about what you're doing whether or not you ask for those opinions. Yeah. And a big part of your job is to decide which means to do and which not do. And that, figuring out that decision-making process is a very complicated and in some ways lifelong thing. Oh, yeah, that balance um, That's something I say, you know, specifically in the context of, of art production. Uh, but I, I, I would say that that's generally true for, you know, now that we live in a social media age, I think that that's generally true for, for everyone. Yeah, I think you have to really parse out 
that we want to listen to and those you don't especially like with me when I became a public figure, I put myself in that position. I, nobody said, Andrew, we're going to give you this. I just started putting myself out there saying I want to be queer and disabled and I give myself, I made myself a platform. Um, and so when people started commenting whether good or bad, I had to expect that they would say what they want to say. But I got what I like about the comments, what I like about seeing that out there is that even if you disagree with me and you don't think that what I'm doing is right or what I'm saying is the right the is the right thing, at least I've started a conversation where there may not have been one before. Or yeah. you you may not have thought about it before. Um, but I wanna veer back into sex work because I had a question while I was rambling on there that I, that popped in my head. When you are with a, are with a client I know I've heard from people who've done sex work that a lot of your job isn't really so much the sex, but more so like communication and talking and kind of building like a pseudo friendship with them for the time that you're there. Have you, when you were dealing with people with disabilities or clients with disabilities, did you kind of learn anything from them that you didn't know before? Did they give you insight into their experience that you can carry with you into your work? Um, so looking back to my catalog of, of clients, specifically disabled clients that I've had, um, I mean, in response to the, the first part of the question, I think that as, as a sex worker, the, what you're always trying to do is give the person the experience that they want. Um, it might be that that experience that they want is something that's somehow impossible <laughs> to, to give them, um, but you're going to be doing your best to do it. Um, so that might mean, um, you know, just trying to get as much information as you can in advance. Um, sometimes people are very closed off with information, um, either because they're super shy or because they just believe that you're some sort of sexual psychic and you can just know what they want um i wish i had that power by the way i wish i could just yeah know. yeah um yeah after after a number of years in the business you do sort of start to see patterns and realize things that are a little bit more common so that you can kind of bust out you know stuff with probably an 80 percent chance of being right um i mean in terms of um sort of specifically working with people with disabilities i don't I don't, I don't think that I treat them any differently than clients I have that don't have disabilities. Um, I would say generally I would try to get as much information from them in advance. Although, as I said before, um, usually clients with disabilities, um, they tend to give quite a bit of information in advance. Um, there was one been, exception. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, have you ever been surprised by someone? The one exception I had of a guy, uh, a client I had in New York, who um, didn't tell me that he was in a wheelchair until uh, I was already on my way over to his place, and he sent me a text message. Um, and in this case, it was a guy who uh, was a long-term uh, survivor of HIV and had uh, initial um, a, uh, which I don't know too much about. Uh, but I've heard which, the actor uh, before, but I think... It has something to do with the lungs, maybe? I could be totally wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's basic. It's uh, I think it's the proper name for it is avascular necrosis, and it, it has something. To, I don't know exactly what the relationship to HIV is, but I know it's uh, something that does show up in people with HIV, uh, 
although it, you can also just have it as a result of another condition, um, that uh, essentially causes blood supply to a specific area of the body, normally bones, uh, to deteriorate and uh, kind of cut it cut off. And so the way that that manifests with some people is that you um, think it's particularly common in the hip joints, uh, and essentially the bones stop getting blood supply, and then they just uh, start to deteriorate so they can't actually hold weight anymore um one of your listeners who's a doctor may have told you who are medical professionals if you're listening going oh my god they're both so wrong or they're right can you if you want to give us some insight on this condition that'd be great um um anyway so for this one particular client he uh I don't know if he told me that he was HIV positive in advance or he definitely didn't tell me that he was in a wheelchair until I was already on my way over to his place and sent me a text message. Um, I mean, I'm guessing that that was because he was worried that I was going to reject him. And so if he, in a situation like this, if you tell someone in advance, um, you know, wheelchair or I'm living with HIV or whatever and then they say okay and then a day before the session they say oh something came up you can't necessarily be sure that they're whether something actually came up or whether they're rejecting you for that specific oh you're never sure and I've been in those situations where so I've definitely been there where the person didn't show or bailed on me last minute once the minute I said I'm in a chair they went radio silent for a while and then all of a sudden they're like oh yeah something just you know or I've had guy, I had a guy literally once, I met him at my dorm room back when I was in university, and we were going to hug up, and I, he came into the elevator with me, and I, we went up, up to almost my room, I got off the elevator, and he was gone. And I was like, uh, where'd he go? He literally had jumped out before the elevator went up, and he disappeared. I never heard of him again. And I was like, wow, okay. Like, you have to be, you're so afraid of this disability thing that you're going to just disappear? All right, okay. Um, so you can never really be sure why people do that, but it does... There is a sense of like immediate, oh, it's because I'm in a chair, isn't it? And yeah. it feels really shitty. And when and I can imagine when if it was a sex worker, somebody you're you're willing to, you know, spend money on to get the services you need. If they were to bail for a minute, you'd be like, oh, is it because I? Is it because they realized they couldn't do it? Am I might work. All these thoughts. But I think it would be especially troubling if you had saved up money to do this and then and then they said no yeah, and i mean in that situation i was i was a little bit surprised uh just because up until that point everybody every client i'd had who had a disability had not only told me about it in advance but sort of outlined various things about um how that was going to affect the sexual experience um and with this guy it was just kind of a last minute thing and it was fine i showed up this place and we the he was looking for fairly light session as my as I, as I recall so um it wasn't it was more of a kind of kissing cuddling thing um so it didn't really uh the fact that his legs weren't um, working the way that they used to didn't really affect the session um but uh yeah i think that's the only time it was uh, a, a very last minute thing um one thing that did surprise me about it a little bit um is that again People with disabilities, they give you a lot of advanced information, um, but they also generally want to talk to you and kind of feel you out a little bit. And part of that is that um, 
you as a as a client, you're in a physically vulnerable position, right? Yeah, completely. You know, just an average client. You know, like I'm kind of a big guy. You know, I'm six feet tall. You know, 190 pounds, broad, muscular. Um, so even just kind of an average dude. Um, if I decided to start some shit with you. <laughs> Essentially, you're in some 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 trouble. Yeah. And so, if it's somebody who who already who's also you know um, you know dealing with some some you know physical limitations or whatever, the issue that you could be you know assaulted or robbed or something like that is, is I, I would think more on the front of people's minds. And so, and I had I've had friends of mine who have hired sex workers in Toronto who've told me clearly that their everything experience they have with a sex worker as a disabled person they've been robbed. Been robbed, they've been affiliated, or something happened that because they are physically vulnerable. And to hear the stories, it's like, oh my god, like wow, this is the only way that this person can can access sex or feel like they can access sex. Certain time they're putting this at risk, but they take the risk they want to get off. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that I don't actually know that many guys that are sex workers. Um, I, I've certainly met different guys through my travels in the business and um, through doing group scenes and stuff like that. Um, but I would say that well, there's plenty of decent, you know, intelligent people who work in the sex business. Um, it's not necessarily a thing that only has those kinds of tools. Um, you know, there's a wide range of people who measure it for a wide range of reasons. Um, I mean, I think in general for, for, I mean, we haven't talked about this, but maybe it's a nice way to um, sort of kind of conclude is to talk about, um, like, if you are a person with disabilities who's hiring a sex worker, things that you need to think about or, or keep in mind. Um, and uh, one thing I would say generally uh, for all clients, but particularly if, you, if you're a person who's in a vulnerable position, is to, you know, to actually talk to the person in advance. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we sort of forget that the phone exists <laughs> these days. You know, everything happens by email and text. Yeah. Um, but what I always say to clients is you can find out so much more by, you know, talking to somebody on the phone for five minutes than you can from emailing back and forth. Yeah, you can hear their voice, you can hear their tone, you can, I mean, one of the things I would think as a disabled person that you have to be aware of is, would you have an exit strategy? Do you have, like when I'm with somebody sexually, even if it's a hookup, I don't tell one or two of my staff where I live, and if, you know, if something were to happen, or and if you don't hear me by this time, come and check, come and admit everything's all right, I'll let them know that yeah. this is what I'm doing so that I and I think that people with disabilities should do that. The trouble is that there's a lot of shame in dealing with care staff and saying, oh, I'm, I'm disabled and sexual, I'm getting off right now with somebody. There's, there's a fear of telling your care staff that, that you're being sexual, so many people don't. Yeah. I mean, that part I don't necessarily know how to navigate, but I know, um, I mean, I have plenty of female friends who will hook up for sort of, you know, more casual sexual experiences with, with men, I would say. Not not who are disabled, but just women. Um, uh, who will, you know, use various techniques, like, you know, as soon as the guy arrives, uh, they make a quick, potentially even fake phone call where they call a friend and just say, yep, he's here now. Uh, yeah, I'll give you a call in a couple of hours. Okay, bye. Yeah, I've done um, that. You know, I've I've done versions of that as a sex worker. The odd time that I enter a situation that seems a little bit sketchy to me, where I will actually, I mean, I did have a an assistant, I, uh, I, I will call them, uh, 
for, for a brief period of time that uh, if I was going into a situation I thought was sketchy, I would show up and say, yep, I'm here. The address is blah, blah, blah. As I said, it was, I will be done at this time. I will give you a call then. Um, just so that the person knows that uh, someone might potentially come looking for you or there's a trace or whatever. Yeah. Um, I had, there was another client that I, I saw uh, a number of times who, um, again, was a long-term HIV survivor. Um, don't know specifically what uh, the, the reasons behind his, his physical limitations were, but he wasn't in a wheelchair, but he definitely had some, uh, some mobility challenges. Uh, and he was also quite a small guy. I think he was maybe 5'2 and, you know, 60 years old. And um, the very first time I met him, um, he uh, actually met me. He, we were both in Toronto at the time, um, but he actually asked me to come to a hotel. Um, and he didn't tell me anything about it in advance. Um, but I, I showed up and uh, stepped in the room and then immediately could tell that he was a long-term HIV survivor by just by looking at the condition of his body. Um, and he said, you know, FYI, I'm positive, I like that, sorry. Um, and he didn't actually specifically say this, but I realized immediately he wanted to meet a hotel because it's a safer environment for you. You know, if uh, I start beating you up, you can at least start making some noise or, or something like that. You know, there's other people around. Um, Somebody will hear and you. Someone will hear you and I'm not in your house where I can, you know, rip you off or something like that. Um, after that, I did a number of other sessions with him where I actually went to his, went to his house. Um, but for his, for the first session, he, you know, had specifically wanted to meet in a hotel. Uh, I, I, I'm assuming for that reason, just as a, to kind of feel me out, make sure things were safe, um, not put him himself in a vulnerable position. Yeah, no, I think going to, the time for me, the hotel that I, it's difficult to rent room and then pay with the sex worker. Um, plus, my hotels are not the pinnacle of accessibility that we wish they were for right. a lot of us. So, like, you know, for me, I would need a special lift to get into bed. All these things that I would require a hotel to buy. But I understand that that's, for some of us with disabilities, that's, that's a safety measure. And I think that's, if you can do that, that's great to protect yourself. My advice to disabled people hiring sex workers, much like you said, is to talk with them first. And if they don't feel, if they don't, if you, if you suss out on the phone that they're not, that you're not comfortable and, and the transactions say, so, you know, it's not going to work for me anymore. Yeah. Thanks so much. See you later. If you get that gut feeling, we've all had that feeling where we're in a situation where we don't feel safe. And I've been in sexual situations where I've had that feeling and I've shut it down. I've actually used my disability to get out of situations and said, like, oh, I'm feeling kind of super disabled today. Um, I'm, I'm going to call my care staff. Bye. And I've just yeah. found a way out because I didn't feel safe and I, I left. So if you, my advice for... for disabled people hiring sex workers, if you have to, if you don't feel safe and you have to trap up your disability out of there, that's what I would do. And I have yeah. done. Um, I also think that, you know, telling a, telling a staff member that you're with somebody from this time to this time, if you don't hear from me, like 10 minutes after the, the time we're done, come check me a phone call, tell a friend. Like, I think the reason why all of the assaults happen is because people would really feel ashamed that they have to hire a sex worker. That they have that they put themselves in this situation. I talked to friends of mine who hired workers and have been robbed and have been assaulted and then called cops and said, "You know, this happened to me." And the cops go, "We'll stop hiring sex workers then. They're not safe." And my the 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 friend of mine also said, like, "Well, well, that's great, but how am I supposed to have? How am I supposed to be pleasured then? How am I supposed to? How can I do this if? How can I be sexual if I can't hire a sex worker?" So. Being safe and getting what you need—it's often a fine you, that you tend to tend to straddle to get your sexual needs met. Sometimes, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the bringing the police into the world of sex work is never a good idea. <laughs> um, um, sex workers do not have a good relationship with the police generally. Um, and whether you are a client who gets assaulted by a sex worker or the reverse, if you're a sex worker who gets assaulted by the client, um, the, the situations I know like that that have gone to the police um, never have uh, a result that is, is helpful. That is, yeah. Uh, I mean, one thing I would say is that if you, if you don't, if you have concerns about being safe um, and you don't necessarily want to involve your uh, care staff, if you just have a friend come over to hang out with you in advance, so then there's the same person who's seen their face. Yeah. Um, I think that, that might be a little bit of a, of a deterrent. Um, the guys in the situation who uh, are dealing with sex workers, you know, assaulted, or excuse me, the, the sex workers who assaulted clients, I don't know what the specific situations they were under which they found them. Um, but, you know, there's a number of sites that you can find sex workers on where the, the sex workers, usually not the clients, but the sex workers are actually paying for a membership to the site. Right. So they have a name, uh, they have a credit card that's attached to it. Um, now, whether or not the site would willingly turn that information over is one thing. Um, but if you, for example, have, you know, a documented conversation on your phone, that says, you know, I contact this person on the site, um, you know, the police could potentially get some information that way. Um, I mean, I, I would say generally, like, I, in, in my experience as a business, um, these types of things are quite rare, um, in my experience. Um, and I think that when you're dealing with men, Hiring male, hiring male sex workers, um, these types of incidents of, of violence or just sort of general disrespect, I think, are, are much lower. When it comes to men hiring female sex workers, that's a whole other situation. Of course. Um, men are hiring men, I think. Um, I remember years ago, there was a conference that I was attending at U of T. Uh, just about sex work in general, and Gerald Hannon was talking about this, and he said, you know, in in our society, we place this general value on men treating each other well, on being a man of your world, on stick, shaking on a deal and sticking to it, and that um, kind of idea of what it is to be a good man um, filters into sex work uh, in the way that that men treat the sex workers they hire, um, but also in the way that they treat female sex workers they hire, the, the, being the opposite, that are, at the same time, we place this value on men treating each other with respect, we place a value on men not treating women with respect. And so that is, um, the, those values are quite clearly manifest in the way that people deal with uh, people that they've hired for sexual services. I would like to, to say that I think that's the case. I think when you add disability and vulnerability into that, into that mixture of sex work, um, I think that sometimes that good man ideology can change more from something that isn't so good anymore. Um, I'm not saying that it happens frequently. From what I talk to who have hired sex workers, I hear stories of assault, stories of abuse, stories of being robbed more often than not. So I think when you look at disability, there there is some sort of like, oh, I can take it to this person because they can't, they can't run after me or they can't somebody or the, so I think that that there needs to be like we were just talking about you need you need to have to the place and you need to talk to the worker before you actually meet to see to gauge both of your comfort levels 
Yeah, I mean, I think the things that we already said, you know, talk to the worker in advance on the phone, um, you know, contact them through a site where there is a sort of tracking mechanism, like a kind of site where they have to pay with a membership, um, you know, have someone else be present when they arrive. Um, you know, if you follow those protocols, um, and I hate to say it, but if you're, if you are, um, you know, going with sex workers who are charging more as opposed to the guys that you might see on Craigslist who'll say like, oh yeah, 40 bucks. Um, the odds that you get somebody who's going to deliver a quality service to you, I, I think, go up. Um, so what you're saying is if, can, you, if you want a really good time, save up your money, cripples. And then uh, and then you might get somebody who who will spend time with you that you will enjoy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you get what you pay for in the world, and that's something that's very pronounced in in the world of sex work, especially. Um, I mean, what I what I say to to clients is always that my goal in a session is to make the person come back, uh, to provide them with an experience that's going to make them want to see me again. Now, whether that's somebody who's desires and financial situation mean that they can see me on a weekly basis versus somebody whose desires and or financial situation means they can hire me once a year. Um, those are, those are things that are not, uh, that are about the client, right? Not about yeah. me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I have no interest in, uh, from a purely selfish perspective, I have no interest in screwing somebody over once if I can see them a bunch of times and make way more money off of them, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make any sense Yeah. to, um, it's not financially you know, viable to, for you to do that. Yeah. No, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And I think in, um, I think it's different for women. Um, but if you're a male sex worker, even in a city, the size of Toronto, um, the client base is limited. Um, and so, uh, if you want to make a living at it, um, as opposed to just doing it for months to make extra cash for clubbing or whatever, if you really want to make a living at it, you actually have to generate regular clients. Yeah, um, yeah. And those can be clients that see you once a week. Uh, those can be clients that, you know, I have people that I call regulars that I literally see once, have seen once a year for 10 years. Um, not necessarily even because they uh, can't afford it, more often than that, um, but because they, uh, it's, it's, I don't know, they rationalize it as a, a way of treating themselves or, you know, it's my birthday, so I'm going to hire a sex worker. Definitely. The last thing I want to ask you before we close off here, and thanks so much for being so frank with us about the industry and, and sharing your experiences, but I want to ask you what your favorite experience with a client was and why hmm I'm just I'm flipping back through my mental <laughs> catalog um I mean I guess one that really good experience I had um was one that we did today someone that I wrote about which was I who um had uh, lost the use of his things uh in the car accident and the the experience was was interesting for me in a couple of ways. The first was that from the the first uh, experience I had with him, just in the context of that single session, I had a kind of mental opening up to uh, 
what my actual position in his life was and, and, and by extension, my position in the lives of all of the clients I have, um, that, you know, I'm doing something good. It's something that I can feel good about. Um, but I'm not anybody's savior. Um, the people that I'm seeing are not living, you know, completely empty, hopeless lives necessarily. Um, you know, whether they're disabled or whether, whether they're not, um, what I think what was interesting <laughs> specifically about that scenario is that we, we met, uh, can't remember if we saw each other once or twice, um, before I wrote an essay about it. And, um, I would say generally with the column that I write, uh, I, the experiences that I, I write about are always people from the past um, or, uh, people who I'm not, maybe who I've seen once, but who I'm assuming I'm not going to see again. Um, and, or at the very least people that I assume are not going to read it. In this particular situation, the guy, uh, I was in Amsterdam, uh, the guy is Dutch. Um, and, uh, he speaks English, but he's not highly fluent in English. And okay. so I made the false assumption that he would not be reading an English language gay website. So anyway, so they, uh, we'd seen each other, I think a couple times, uh, I, I'm in and out of Amsterdam, so I wasn't seeing him so clearly. I, my column came due. I thought, oh, this is an interesting experience. I'm going to write about this. And then maybe a month after it came out, he sent me an email and he said, oh, I read what you wrote about our sexual experience together. Um, that's did not you, something that's ever happened to me before. <laughs> did, you, like, did you like clutch your chest? Oh my God, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, were you ready? Were you freaking out when you read that line in the email where he's like, I read it? Yeah. I mean, I was freaking out because I felt like, I, I mean, with the essays I write, I always, of course, I don't use the person's real name. I adjust, uh, you know, identifying details and stuff like that because I don't necessarily want, um, other people who might know them to read this and hear about their, you know, twisted, kinky sexual fantasies or the fact that they're hiring somebody to take care of them. Um, and uh, so I was, I, I was worried because I didn't know how that would have affected him. Um, and I, I can't remember what my initial response was, but I, I think I wrote back something that was relevant that said, you know, I really didn't expect that you were going to read it. Um, I feel kind of, nervous and like even a bit of shame that I was saying and I you know I don't want you to feel like I'm exploiting your life but I, I wrote it because this experience of us being together had this very interesting effect on me and kind of changed my way of thinking and then um I, I hadn't been in Amsterdam for quite a long time like maybe six months or something like that and then I was going back and he he's I think he sent me an email and said when are you coming back I want to see you again um and I happened to be going there the next week and, and so I let him know and I you know remember I was biking over to his place and you know in the rain in Amsterdam thinking oh god what's going to happen what is this conversation going to be like you know and um so I went over um and we didn't talk about it at all right away. We sat and had a glass of wine. Um, he's a big wine aficionado, so he always has some super special, interesting thing that he wants to drink. Awesome. Um, and then we did our usual sexual session that we that we do. He's pretty specific about what he, he wants each time. Um, and then after it was over, we 
sat and had another glass of wine. And this whole time I have this kind of dread of thinking, oh God, what's this conversation going to be like? And he just said, you know, I was really surprised to read it, but I, I wasn't upset. I was very touched. Um, I, you know, I was moved by the way that you portrayed my life, um, you know, and the way that you talked about me and uh, your experience of being with me and all of that. And uh, yeah, and so he wasn't, he wasn't upset about it at all. Um, as far as I know, he's still a client. Um, again, I'm not in Amsterdam all the time, but uh, you know, normally whenever I travel to a, a city, I let the people I've seen there before know there, and then if they want to meet me, they do. But uh, at least based on the last experience, it sounds like he's still interested in getting to me. So I think I mean, he's traveling now, but I'll probably be there in a month, so we'll see if he wants to meet again. It's really cool that he was comfortable in that. It's also, I think, why I was attracted to your work initially was because you put it up there. And we, I, uh, we've seen a lot of articles from people who are living with disabilities hiring services. It's rare that we saw the other side of it. So that's why your pieces, I was like, oh my God, I have to speak as a person because, wow. So I think you put it out there and I like that you're so honest about it. And I think what you're doing, you setting your own floor night night. Yeah, it's dealing with people's disabilities. Is, I think that's very really poignant for you and, and will only enhance your career as a sort of um, yeah, it's good. I mean, I, I, there's other layers of whatever to be shed over time, but that uh, specific incident is kind of the most recent one that I can think of. Awesome. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. You, we talked a lot about a lot of different stuff, money, safety, your experience as a sex worker working with the disabled community. Um, it gives us some such a vote, and I'm glad we could share it with the Disability After Dark audience. Great, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. All right, thanks so much. Um, I'll be sure to link all your contact stuff in the in the flyer uh, for the podcast. And thanks, for thanks so much. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. I'll say again that Devin was a great interview. He was really insightful. He had a lot to say on his views around sexuality and disability and what that meant for him as a sex worker. And it was really important to hear his side of things. Because if we ever do talk about sex and disability, we rarely hear how the worker feels. And I think that his view was important and, and brings a different depth to the conversation. I should also mention that Devin Delacroix is a featured columnist on Daily Extra and writes about his experiences as a sex worker on that, in that column quite frequently. So check it out for sure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability. So hey, did you love this episode of Disability After Dark, but didn't quite get your crip fix? I have some fantastic news for you. Crippled Content Creations presents a new podcast, Disability with Drew, bringing disability to you. This brand new series will look at disability society and disability culture. We'll look at the everyday experiences of people with disabilities and ask, how does disability feel? By bringing disability with Drew to you, I want disability to be something we all have access to. Episodes of Disability with Drew will be available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and your favorite podcast app. Copyright Notice this program was created and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations. 
Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability.